You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. Dealing with the disruptive effects of digital technology is nothing new for banks. In fact, it was banks themselves who, in the 1960s, introduced ATMs as a more convenient, more automated option for depositing and withdrawing your money. In the 90s, before the web showed up, banks were offering PC banking, custom software that used the early internet to let you bank from home for the first time. I'm sure I still have the floppy disk somewhere. Today, banks face a whole new level of digital disruption. The modern internet has radically reduced the cost of running a bank and the cost of reaching customers, effectively opening the door to a host of new tech-savvy competitors. At the same time, customers demand intuitive, beautiful digital experiences from everyone they deal with, including their banks. In response to these pressures, banks must bravely go through what is commonly called digital transformation. Digital transformation means a few different things. It means treating digital channels just as you would brick-and-mortar ones and meeting the customer wherever and whenever they need you. It means running a leaner, more agile technology shop that can make changes faster and easier. And it also means embracing innovation. Make no mistake, digital transformation is a journey. The banks that fail to make this journey will suffer. Those that succeed in their journey will thrive and become part of the open future. In this episode, we talk about what it takes to make that journey and to build a digital bank. Our guest today is Andrew Moore, President and CEO of EQ Bank. Andrew is considered a banking maverick here in Canada, where he and the team at EQ have changed the precedent for what it means to offer financial services to Canadians giving them access to faster, cheaper products that simply aren't offered by the big five. His keen eye for banking innovation has grown EQ Bank's assets to over $35 billion and has established EQ as a leading digital banking provider. His focus is on understanding how banks can leverage technology to improve the societies in which they operate. So it comes as no surprise that he is a vocal advocate of open banking. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Isle. Why don't we start with the story of EQ Bank? Tell us how EQ started and where you are today. So EQ is a, a brand within the equitable bank family of businesses. And really, historically, this bank, equitable bank, has been a mortgage lender. And 
we needed to get funding or get deposits to fund our mortgages. So we started down this journey of trying to figure out how to get directly to the consumer. We spent a lot of time in Europe visiting challenger banks in Europe, uh, understanding the new technology, how the cloud might influence banking going forward. And just over five years ago, we launched EQ Bank and have moved it forward from there. So our, our starting vision was really simply about offering deposits to Canadian consumers. And as we started to drill more deeply into the offerings that traditional Canadian banks uh, provided, we, we really thought there was an opportunity to differentiate and create some novel approaches that can create unique advantages for Canadian consumers. We really feel that we've done a, a good job on that so far. Only five years in, we've still got lots of things ahead of us and lots of things we're excited about delivering. But even today, we, we really feel we're changing the, the Canadian landscape in banking in, in certain ways. Our core product is our Savings Plus product. It really combines the best features of a savings account and a checking account in one and really starts to kind of change the mindset about how you should hold your money in a bank. Let's chat about that Canadian banking landscape you mentioned. In broad terms, what would you say the major banks are missing right now? Is it as simple as a checking and savings account combined, or is it something bigger? I think I'm clearly on the record as saying that, broadly speaking, our financial services infrastructure is out of date for a modern economy like Canada. And it's not to point any fingers at any individual bank, but I think when you see the speed of, for example, of making a payment across the country, the cost of making that payment, there are many things that, that just don't make a lot of sense. The difficulty of moving money across the banking system generally is something that's holding back our economy. The, the difficulty of actually being able to see accounts from a different number of different banks all in one place and assemble that data so you understand your banking situation is also a challenge. So there's a lot of opportunity to improve the banking infrastructure to make Canadians' lives better and easier. Why would you say that's the case? What's caused this outdated banking infrastructure? There's a natural tendency when you have very concentrated banking markets. So there's not much impetus on the part of the incumbent players to innovate. In a sense, it's really hard when you think about it as an executive of one of the big six banks to really think about how you might gain share. So to some extent, you spend a lot of time trying to put a picket fence around your current customers, offer them more products, and acknowledge that that might only move the dial very slightly on overall market share, but help your customers work within your own infrastructure. And so I think you see a fairly decent job being done, frankly, within one bank's infrastructure, but as soon as you're trying to move across institutions, that becomes very difficult. Uh, and I think it's it's like the department store in traditional retailing. If you go back 20 or 30 years ago, one thought about going to Eaton's in the Bay to buy many things, but it turned out they didn't do a lot of specialty things really well. And so that migrated into where you end up with specialty retailers that dominate today as well as online retailers. And I think we'll see the same thing in banking. We'll see some specialty services that aren't offered by the large banks being offered by specialty providers and some and the, and the big banks still continue to have a role but not uh, not necessarily in all parts of your financial life being able to cross environments gets into the open banking world but even before that there's been a challenge innovating within the big five banks why do you think that's the case that even limited to within their own systems, large banks have a challenge innovating. Well, I think 
part of it is is there's very little incentive to innovate. So the the business case for having a lower fee account is actually a hard one to make within a large institution. You can imagine going into the chief executive's offices saying, can you explain this to me? Today, we charge each of these customers $20 a month, and now we're going to move it to $10 and payments are going to be cheaper. What business case can you make around that? So there's very little incentive to actually move the dial in that regard. And then the other challenge is more broadly, the infrastructure that connects uh, the banks. So to the extent you're sitting in one bank trying to innovate, say with faster payments across the system, it's actually hard to get that to happen because it's not not easy to get the other banks to play ball with you. Actually, need to get them on side, and so you need to think about that as, these as national projects where all players and all participants in the market are, are dragged along in, in some way to actually achieve these better outcomes. So, I mean, think Payments Canada, finance, looking at open banking. You know, we're all working on some of these things, but there does need to be more sort of national impetus to do that. And uh, in a concentrated banking market, I think we nearly clearly need to think about how to create more competition in the market. And that needs to be engineered to some extent by regulation or some sort of government oversight of what's going on in the market. Otherwise, it does just tend to uh, gravitate towards the largest players. You touched on the role of regulators and government in creating the right dynamics within a banking market. In terms of the regulation we have in place today, are there material barriers to having this kind of an ecosystem? Clearly needs to be impetus for sure, because some of the critical elements of both faster payments and open banking require, for example, exposed APIs from each of the banks. And I know you've spoken about this in some of your other podcasts, but clearly forcing and encouraging and coercing institutions to make sure their APIs are available is, is going to be critical. So, for example, one of the precepts of open banking is that the data belongs to the consumer and they should be able to share that data. So in order to be able to share that data, it has to be accessible easily from the institutions that they're actually posting their transactions with. So data standards that are with open APIs where, on the one hand, there's security and data control, and on the other hand, it's open to other more innovative players to come and use that data to create value-added insights for consumers is absolutely critical to this uh, general program. Clearly, some people may not have the business interest to do that. It may actually put some parts of the business model under stress. So you know, given that reality, then there clearly needs to be some government hand behind the scenes to ensure that we all move along together. When EQ banks set out on their digital transformation journey, They were just looking for more deposits. But when they started interviewing European challengers, they discovered that technology enables them to do things quite differently. Yes, it did enable them to introduce innovative products like a combination checking and savings account. And yes, it enabled them to operate much more efficiently than their peers. Yet for Andrew... This isn't just about EQ. By his measure, the whole infrastructure of Canadian banking is out of date. Inside one bank, it's not that bad. But across banks, even doing basic things like moving money is expensive and takes a long time. So, banks try and keep customers 
all to themselves. Andrew says we are still in the department store phase. As banks innovate and open up their data and capabilities to specialized players, we are moving towards the specialty store phase, where niche providers use our financial information to cater to our unique needs. Andrew believes that open banking will help the Canadian banks work together towards modernizing this infrastructure, in turn, helping Canadians. It should start, he says, from the basic principle that you own your data. What exactly does Andrew think open banking will do to the Canadian banking landscape? That's what I asked him next. It will force us all to up our game, frankly. Uh, it'll allow a novel fintech to come and compare the merits of different bank accounts, for example, or to automatically think about the fact that you might have $5,000 sitting in a checking account somewhere that you could be getting interest on. You don't need that money for a while. And somebody could be nudging you to move that money into a higher interest savings account. You know, all of that uh, does actually erode margins at the, inside the institution that's sitting on cash, no interest. So that does force us all to be more efficient. But forcing efficiency in economy is, is a good thing. It creates a more productive economy that allows you know, people to prosper and, and flourish. And I think you know, one of our broader goals at a societal level, I think, is to make us all more prosperous, deal with issues of wealth inequality. And things like open banking absolutely lead us in that direction. I like the way you put it, to up our game. It sounds like you're saying that even once you have the APIs exposed and everyone can compare, we're going to have to get better at our product game, introduce new offerings that once compared, they're just better. I think that and the customer experience around that aisle as well. Because frankly, even though I'm a banker, I'd rather be spending time with my children or doing things I'd like to do than banking. So to make it easy, to make it something where I can be comfortable, I'm looking after my affairs properly with a minimal amount of time, it would allow me to sleep at night knowing I'm doing the right thing in that part of my life, and then allow me to focus on other things that are really important to me, like my relationships and so on. Indeed, this notion of invisible banking or ambient banking has started to take hold in Asia and elsewhere. Is that something you think Canadian banks have to shift towards? We should be. We should aspire to it. I think many of us are you know, quite happy to spend some time, you know, once every three months, or once every six months, focus an hour on making sure everything's lined up the way it is. But I'd like to really know that I did that and then I can sort of set and forget. And the way I've set up my arrangements will kind of optimize at least provide better returns than if I uh, wasn't thinking about it. I see that particularly actually in the small business market. If I'm a small business person, I don't want to be spending most of my time collecting my receivables, worrying about billing and invoicing and matching my accounts. I'd really like that to happen behind the scenes. Let's talk about Canada's open banking efforts so far. Canada has been at it for roughly two years plus, and it's been a little bumpy. Can you describe your impression of 
our open banking efforts so far. Well, I think it's, it's a bit of a curate's egg, so good in parts, right? So you've seen advocates like Colin Deacon speaking in a very positive and constructive way. You've seen people in finance that really have a deep understanding of Julian Brazo, for example, really knows a lot about open banking globally. So I'm you know, encouraged in many parts of the government that they understand it and trying to push forward. I would like to see more political will behind this, and I don't understand quite why that isn't emerging. To me, this is one of those blinding glimpses of the obvious of something that we need to do to make Canada a better place to live. There are many people, well, like yourself, I'm, I'm encouraged to see you doing these podcasts. I'm encouraged by many fintechs that are standing up and being voices on this. Frankly, I'm encouraged by many of the voices, even within the large institutions, around how they understand this is the way forward. I would say that I haven't seen enough support from the large institutions around this is something we've got to get on and get it done fast from the top of the house level. I think the reality is we're going too slowly right now for sure, and we should draw some lines in the sand that let's get on with this thing and, and let's get it done because it, it's absolutely obvious that we need to go in this direction. Let's try and help some of our listeners in other regions that are similarly structured, facing similar challenges. What are some of the objections you're hearing from the big five? I, and I wouldn't point to the big five in particular, frankly. There are real issues around how do you authenticate customers and who has access to those APIs, who would be the people that would be trusted to act in this regard. And, and industries come up with some ideas about how we should allow, say, large accounting firms, for example, to demonstrate that certain businesses meet the standards that would allow them to access API interfaces. So I think there's some good creative ideas coming in that area. You mentioned the APIs, those common APIs for the secure exchange of financial data. In addition to those common APIs, what parts of Canada's banking infrastructure also need to be modernized? Well, certainly the way we think about it, it's a combination of three things, frankly. So it's the open APIs uh, to drive the open banking agenda. It's faster payments. And we would argue that payments should be able to be triggered within the open banking infrastructure as well. So we've got to get the real-time rail up and running so that instant payments can be made. And then beyond that, digital identity is still a bit of a mess in Canada. So we need to have good systems for digital identity so that people can validate themselves online. Between those three things, then we can really create a future-proof Canadian banking system that's going to serve the needs of a growing and more sophisticated population. Let's get a little more technical then. It's not just on the product side that EQ has introduced innovation. You're quite proud of your technology team and some of the innovative firsts they've achieved. Can you describe? some of the things you've done? The important thing about how you design banking systems is, is the overall systems architecture and, and structure. Before we launched EQ Bank, we spent a lot of time talking to best-in-class, in our view, challenger banks in Europe. And it was clear that the way you th should think about this is, is at three levels. So you start with the core banking system, which is your book of record and, and absolutely needs to have huge integrity to it. It does the interest rate calculations. It's it's a very complicated piece of software that really needs to be run with a lot of strength. You need to sit a mid-tier that can then have the open API infrastructure to other institutions. 
the top level of the three is really the app or the way that our customers are accessing the, the data. So imagine, for example, Kyle wants to look at his total balances today. So maybe hopefully he's got an EQ bank account, but he might have two other bank accounts. So from the mid-tier, we would extract balances that are sitting at two other bank accounts. We would extract the data from the, our own banking system with the EQ bank balances and present them to you in a way that's useful to you. So for example, we could show you the interest rate that you might be getting on each of the three accounts. You may choose to move money between one or the other, or you may have a payment that you want to make out of one bank and you need to move money from the other banks. That is really how you need to think about the architecture. So rather than your architecture being a silo, the back end and the mid-tier and the front are decoupled. So effectively, I can provide the same experiences even with other banks' products. Is that right? Certainly, that's the construct. That's the idea. And one can imagine building entirely new apps that sit on top of this uh, mid-tier. How is EQ doing on that front? I mentioned an innovation first earlier. Can you tell us a bit about that, your cloud-based core? I believe that we're one of only two banks in North America that are running their core banking system in the cloud. So we sit on Microsoft Azure. The beautiful thing about running these systems in the cloud is that they are scalable uh, in real time. So in banking, you have seasonal activities. So things like RSP season, TFSA season, tax season, but different loads on your banking system. So what you can do in cloud is, is expand while your customers are using your sites more frequently to, to deal with tax returns or whatever, and then shrink that need later on. In our case, we've been growing fairly rapidly. In fact, we're adding about 500 customers a day. So you can see that our need to slowly expand the capacity of our systems is growing. In a traditional server farm type arrangement, that would have been quite a hard thing to actually do and scale at that, at that rate. Do you think it's important for other Canadian banks to adopt the same model? Some of them have argued that it's a security risk, for example. I obviously re reject that assertion. Frankly, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, I've got Microsoft has 3,000, I think, security engineers working within their Azure platform. No individual bank in Canada, and take even the largest ones, can, can possibly aspire to have that level of expertise. The more that so many applications migrate to the cloud, the more that advantage is going to be true. As a result of this, you... Even smaller institutions are getting you know, as good a security as the largest could possibly provide on their own. Even those banks who have embraced the cloud and want to move there are finding it challenging, to say the least. Why do you think that is? Well, it is challenging to move older applications to the cloud. It's not understood widely by the Canadian population how much Baylor Twine is still holding together the systems, even within the larger banks. So, you know, COBOL programmers are still needed in the large institutions because COBOL is... Uh, still a code that's, that's actually runs part of the banking system. So those things are very hard to transfer into the cloud. You know, slowly, obviously, we're getting rid of those things, so it'll become easier over time. But those older banking systems are difficult to move into truly cloud-enabled applications. We'll have to see a fairly significant investment in part of the older institutions to upgrade to truly uh, you know, cloud-native type applications. Do you think a cloud-based core is a prerequisite for open banking success? No, it's not. It's, it's absolutely not a prerequisite. It's hugely advantageous to those that have the systems that can support that. But no, it's not a requirement. It just makes it a little bit more difficult. 
to respond in real time to, to the kinds of loads I'm talking about. And in fact, we'd argue that open banking is actually going to help. You're already seeing a lot of screen scraping going on with those old, older systems. Effectively, a screen scraper, just to be clear, is pretending to be the customer logging in as though they are the customer and then pulling data from the system. That's actually pretty inefficient in terms of what we're trying to achieve there because what you're doing is presenting it as though they're a real customer. We don't really need to do that. All you need to do is provide the data across. So an API strips down the amount of data flowing across and makes that more efficient. So banks should be building those things anyway to make their electronic banking systems more efficient. Not just more efficient, but more secure. That's right. You're really in an invidious position today as a, as a bank because you, you might recognize that you've got a robot of some kind coming in to screen scrape you. So there's a consumer, presumably at some end, at the other end, looking for that integrated data. And so to some extent, to help your customer, you might choose to let that go through. You know there may be a risk that that's actually some kind of uh, data leakage so having APIs and then knowing who's hitting your APIs and that they're authenticated, reputable entities absolutely does improve that cybersecurity risk. Andrew is crystal clear. Open banking will force banks to up their game. Banks continue to leverage digital technology to improve their products, their systems, the ways they respond to customer needs. This, in turn, improves efficiency, raising profits for the banks, but also increasing the wealth of the societies in which they operate. To Andrew, this improvement of society is a key role banks must play. However, when it comes to their customers, banks should actually strive to be more in the background. The fact is, no one gets out of bed in the morning excited to do their banking. You'd rather, as Andrew says, set it and forget it. A truly digital bank knows how to be there when you need them and to disappear when you don't. To do that, you need open banking, an open standard that enables banks to play well with others who are embedded in your digital life. Andrew believes we're getting there, albeit slowly. Like many, he would be encouraged to see more support from the top of the house, given the obvious benefits of moving to open banking. Certainly, technology barriers are often to blame, but sometimes getting support from the top means building a business case. So, I asked Andrew what new business models he sees for banks playing out in the open. I think there are so many ways that banks can be providing more useful services to their customers. Presumably, customers would be happy to pay for. You know, I'd be happy to pay for a service that provided all of my T4s and so that I knew I had all my banking tax information in an integrated package that I could simply send over to my accountant at the end of the year, for example. So there are services that if we're being creative, we can think about uh, you know, offering things that are going to make our customers happy. Presumably that helps with things like customer churn. So you do have to be fairly 
thoughtful about, yes, there is some risk here that certain streams of revenue might lose uh, through open banking. On the other hand, this does cause a bit of disruption in the banking industry. And if you can be innovative and be ahead of the game, perhaps you can move the dial on market share. Perhaps you can capture the, the younger consumer today that will be a customer of yours for the next 50 years because you've explained to them how, how you're helping make their lives better uh, through an open banking environment. You know, the needs of a student, does he or she have enough uh, to go out with their friends on a Friday night, are quite different than those of somebody that's you know, in mid-career. And so uh, open banking applications can actually adapt to that change in lifestyle probably more readily than the banks themselves can deliver that. But if they're providing the data and sitting under some fintech engines and so on that are helping people deal with the different stages of their lives, you know, that bank's going to reap the rewards from, from being there and, and being part of their person's life through the entire journey. You've said a couple of times now, it's more than the products, it's the customer experience. What progress has EQ made on that front? We haven't yet got to open banking, but a good uh, example is an integration we did with TransferWise. Now, TransferWise is a global fintech based out of London and the Nordic countries that does uh, foreign exchange transmission. So we built an integration using our API technology into TransferWise. As a result, we're able to move money or our customers can move money in, from their EQ bank accounts into, say, a bank account in India within two to three minutes at the mid-market Reuters rates plus a small fee. We're the cheapest bank in Canada in terms of the cost of sending that money and we're certainly the fastest and most convenient. So it's an example where we're not claiming that we're fantastic at dealing with all the intricacies of international money transfer, but we can build in a fairly straightforward way APIs that hook into a global fintech. And as a result, our customers are getting the benefit of a best-in-class global foreign exchange experience. We're not providing all of that, but we're providing some pretty neat technology that's accessible to our customers and can move money straight out of their bank accounts to where they want to use it. A glimpse of open banking, but we're not quite there. What can we do to ensure that we're getting the open banking implementation right in Canada? Well, obviously, we need to engage all the stakeholders. Frankly, I think we're already doing a good job around that. And then I think we need to figure out, the government need to figure out what role they want to play in this. This is going to be critical in forcing the pace of change here. Uh, I don't think there's too much risk that we're going to move too fast, frankly. The risk is very much the other way around that we're going to get behind. And I do think as well that, you know, even though I'm a, a strong advocate of open banking, this is a long-term project. This is a set of principles. The principle is, as a Canadian, I own my data. You share that data with other people that might provide me better services, and I'm going to be able to do that. From that springs a font of innovation possibilities. We create the infrastructure, the platform, for other clever people to figure out how to serve the needs of particular Canadians in particular ways. And I'll never have the insight as to how, how a student needs to think about their finances, but other people are very focused on that. The other thing is, we're not a leader in this globally. Markets like the UK, Australia, Singapore, you know, we do benefit from having people that actually know these markets very well and can explain some of the pitfalls and some of the opportunities. We uh, stand to really be advantaged by being a follower of what, what where others have gone. So I think it's a very resolvable problem for Canada that can be an important part of our infrastructure as a, as a society going forward. In the regional race towards open banking, North America has often been called a laggard. 
but things are improving. How do you see the Canadian approach relative to that of the U.S.? I don't think the U.S. will ever really get to open banking in the in the way that we would think about open banking. But that really goes to the structure of their banking industry. You know, I think there's over five thousand banks in the U.S. It's an extraordinarily competitive market, so it relies on that kind of competitive intensity to drive innovation and change. In Canada, it's not realistic that we would get there in that way. So the large banks are going to end up with individual agreements with fintechs and so on. If you're a small bank, you're going to have cap in hand to to the large bank and say, your customer should provide me the data. And they, they may or may not choose to do that. So that's going to really stifle some of the smaller players in moving forward. But when you see you know, the people like PayPal and large companies, Venmo, that can, can have enough influence in the market, they can be influential. In Canada, I don't think that's going to happen. So the models that are much more relevant are what you see in Europe and Australia, where you've got similar structures, you know, very large banks dominating things, and then uh, forcing through regulatory action an open banking kind of environment. You mentioned some other regions. Is there a particular one that you admire and why? Well, certainly the UK has been a pioneer in this, and there do seem to be some really good use cases emerging in the UK. The one that I find particularly compelling, frankly, is around the more disadvantaged to people in society. So the ability to consolidate financial information of people that don't have a lot of wealth and help provide them ways to navigate through the financial system is something that I find particularly admirable. Now, I don't think that Canada's in the same starting spot. That was the political impetus for that was that the banks were widely hated in the UK after the financial crisis. So they come from a different place. But I do think that, that they're doing a good job in terms of when you know life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And from that, there's a whole raft of fintechs that are emerging built on these open banking concepts that are really creating other innovative jobs. So, you know, the society is benefiting from seeing innovation in terms of the financial services they can access, but also it's creating interesting new businesses, creating prosperity and wealth in terms of people, you know, working in the fintech area, uh, which then is an exportable service to other parts of the world. Almost like we were the victims of our own success coming out of the financial crisis. A little bit of that. I think, you know, we, we did a good job in navigating that, right? And Canada's banks are very strong and that's a credit to us. That's a national asset, having banks that don't fold in the face of economic adversity. So I acknowledge that. And I mean, I'm very much part of that. I'm on the Canadian Bankers Association, for example. On the other hand, uh, we need to ensure that we're delivering all the services to all parts of our society in ways that make sense. You know, banks are important to the lifeblood of a, an economy, and it's important that we do the right thing to support our society. I absolutely believe that the, we may have overdialed the pendulum a little bit towards, towards safety and soundness, and not enough towards thinking about how we serve people. Open banking is very much part of that agenda. How do we make the banks work for our society? You know, we're, we're good, profitable entities and so on, but we only exist if we're doing the right things for the people that live in Canada. I believe that open banking can be an important part in, again, upping our game in that, making banks more accessible, making their fees fairer, making things more transparent, uh, having to spend less time investing in my banking and more time in doing the things I want to do. Wishing your competitors well, all in the name of making society better. How positively Canadian of you.
<laughs> Certainly, you know, I, I think that we could build a good business within this, to be clear. We need to do good things for our shareholders, but we also need to do good things for the societies we serve. And I think this is a classic case of, of exactly that. How can we be achieving two things at the same time? What is your advice to other bank CEOs out there who want to make sure they are ready for open banking? Well, I think it's fairly straightforward for bank CEOs. The nice thing about banks is they're full of smart people doing smart things. And so it's, it's a matter of making sure that your teams understand open banking, putting your weight behind it. Bank CEOs, like me, we're trying to do the right thing, I think, as well as build profitable banks. I would encourage all bank CEOs to, to lean into open banking. It's a way of really making our industry more relevant to the country in which we serve. What about individual Canadians? What can we do to nudge our banks towards open banking? Both nudging your banks and I think the other people that it would be nice to nudge would be your politicians and your political leaders. Make sure they're aware that this is an agenda item. So there's lots of resources available. I recognize for any individual, it's a little tough to sort of think about investing time to really understand open banking. But your podcasts, for example, are a great place to listen in and, and try to influence policymakers you know, all along, demand more. You know, People might complain about bank fees and other things that banks do. This is a way, uh, rather than sort of just complain and, and, and beat on the door, this is a way of saying we want more competition in banking to help those things be fairer. In order to do that, we need more competition. And in order to do that, open banking is a very clear roadmap that both can improve cybersecurity, can do a whole bunch of things, but also can make sure that Canadians get a better shake. Do you think it'll work? I think it will work. You know, I think the speed of it will disappoint me. But I can't help but believe you and I will look around 10 years from now, hopefully have a beer and think about, you know, remember those early days of open banking? We were at times despondent that we would ever get anywhere. But I think this is inevitable that the tide of the industry is absolutely flowing in this direction. Will it all be straightforward? Will there be times where we feel we haven't gone far enough? I mean, I, I know there'll be times where I'll feel we haven't gone far enough. On the other hand, what we might achieve, I think will surprise us 10 years from now in terms of how we think about our banks, the relationship with our banks. It'll put us in a new framework of thinking about how the financial services industry is changing as a result of this fundamental mindset shift, which is you, the consumer, own the data you're creating when every time you're interacting with your bank. And if you could share that, think how powerful that can be. Wonderful. Where can our guests find out more about you and EQ Bank? Go onto the Equitable Bank website. And we actually have a web page as, as well, dedicated to open banking and the things that we've said about open banking. Try and open up a bank account. Uh, you don't have to put a lot of money in there just to, to see what the experience is like. We think it's the easiest way to open a bank account in Canada at this point. And we've got other ideas to make it easier going forward. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Ariel, and thank you for your commitment to open banking. I think uh, your voice is important, and, and we really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time today with you. Digital transformation is, in part, a technology journey. Andrew talked about the modernization of infrastructure and the move to cloud. He even talked about how APIs ease integration with partners who can extend your products. Yet, building a digital bank is about much more than technology. 
Being truly successful on your digital transformation journey requires a shift in mindset. Be creative in the products you design. Understand that customers come in all shapes and sizes. Learn to give up short-term revenue in exchange for long-term relationships. Keep doing what's right for shareholders, but also do what's right for society. And that's really what open banking is all about. Helping banks be better banks. As Andrew says, start with the basic principle that your customers own their data. And you are there to help them share it. Not just to let them share it, but to help them share it. To use it. To leverage it. To make their lives better. To build the digital bank of the future, always put the customer first. And recognize that ultimately, you can't be all things to them. If you really care about them, help them leave the walled garden. And maybe, just maybe, they'll let you travel with them wherever they go. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.